Hi, I'm Jack Myers. I'm here to talk with, uh, with Darren about diversity, inclusion, equality, culture, society, business, and all the ancillary topics. Well, I think I started when I was around nine years old and used to, uh, where I grew up, my neighbor was a disc jockey and every Saturday morning he did his show from his home. So I'd go over and be part of his show. Uh, and uh, just fell in love with the whole idea that was radio and fell in love with radio, the idea of radio, uh, the idea of being a kid growing up all the way up in upstate New York, being able to late at night tune into WABC radio or KDKA or uh, WDAF, any of the great radio stations, uh, and listen to rock and roll music. Uh, and, and then uh, it, it was really just uh, a passion for uh, radio and television that took me to the Newhouse School at Syracuse, uh, majoring in radio television. I just always had that passion. Uh, when I got out of college, couldn't get a job, what else is new, and uh, came down to New York and uh, was trying to get a job in the advertising business, maybe as a writer, and wound up selling bus advertising that led to selling radio advertising that led to selling uh, television advertising for CBS and really saw the emergence of cable being in a broadcast company and the impact of technology and really fascinated me. Uh, became a real fan of cable, went into cable TV, began my own company focused on working with the cable TV networks on their revenue models and seeing how technology was impacting them. That led to a, a nice consulting business for many years and then as the internet came in working uh, really understanding studying the technology but the real influence was my master's degree at NYU in a topic called media ecology and media ecology is uh, founded by Marshall McLuhan who many young people don't have never heard of wrote the medium is the massage the medium is the message uh, Global Village, Gutenberg Galaxy, really wrote a series of books, Understanding Media, uh, that were the foundation and core of my master's program in media ecology, uh, and, and really led me down the path of looking be outside of the framework of what's happening inside the industry, what's happening around it in culture, society, how is media influencing culture and society, how are culture and society influencing media, that has led to the founding of Media Village as a home for really an exploration of solutions to the challenges and, and uh, problems confronting the industry. And we work with around 50 major companies, 150 members, co corporate members of Media Village, really underwriting uh, the next stage of B2B marketing uh, and communications uh, built around the realities that uh, everyone is facing today with technology, kind of creating a lot of headwinds for the industry. My interest in media ecology was accidental. I was looking, I was at ABC at the time. Uh, they were willing to pay for my master's. I looked for a media-related program. NYU had something called media ecology, and I uh, just really accidentally walked into the most inspirational and pivotal uh, experience of my life with that, uh, with that program. It was headed by Neil Postman, who wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, 
talking about the impact of moving the culture into show business. And so in the 1960s, he wrote about Donald Trump. He wrote about the inevitability of a Donald Trump emerging, emerging out of show business into our culture and society, as did Marshall McLuhan. And you could go back to Brave New World, 1932, where he said, we're in a race between disaster and education. And if you think about the realities we're confronting today, if we're not educated, if we're not smart about what's going on in the world, we're headed toward disaster. I don't think it's something you ever start at a moment in time or that hopefully you ever finish. It's something that either is part of your life, you, you live it, uh, and breathe it. If, if you start it, um, it's, it's more often something that you feel is being imposed on you as opposed to something that you simply live, breathe, and believe in. And, and so I look back at my whole career and diversity and inclusion was always a part of my hiring. It wasn't something that I actually gave a lot of thought to. It was just there. I wouldn't even, it's become a part of my core, but it was just something that was always there. Where I really focused on it was when I started researching the first generation to grow up with the internet and really looking at how technology would impact on, on this first generation to grow up with the internet and mobile and gaming. What, what would be, how would they be different? How would you be different? And in that research, finding the emergence of, of a very female-centric cohort generation. We're seeing that with the graduation rates from high school, from college. First jobs today, 70% of all first jobs are going to women in the advertising media business in most industries. And recognizing the opportunity to really not only uh, open ourselves up as an industry to learning from this generation by embracing them differently than past generations have been brought into their careers to, to really look for uh, a cohort that was bringing knowledge to our industry in addition to taking knowledge and, and learning uh, from experience. What I realized is experience is no longer uh, a proxy uh, for knowledge and knowledge is no longer a prerequisite for responsibility. So what could I do, what could we do to uh, really support women? And that led to a whole understanding of the broadening scope of diversity beyond gender diversity, which we have now at the mid-level and junior level of our industry, but still not at the senior level. Uh, but diversity, ethnicity, uh, color, background, military, and pre incarcerated, uh, all different types of diversity, autism, differently abled. So it, it just keeps going. You know, the, the future of men's a really interesting topic. The book was uh, published in 2016, written in 2015. It was when we thought Hillary Clinton would be president, although the book predicted, it didn't predict Trump per se, but it did predict and, and recognize the looming backlash among young men that were experiencing that Donald Trump personifies. The first chapter talked about the need for 
men to get out in front of the realities of the past and to acknowledge their own truths to end this deny, deny, deny mentality that so many men have grown up with and, and to really confront their own realities and, and how they're perceived in, in the marketplace where women are increasingly uh, important in, in all aspects of our lives. They've always been important, but they've always also been rele relegated to certain uh, cultural norms, and the gender norms have so dramatically shifted. And when The Future of Men was published in 2016, we were really looking at the, how those gender norms are shifting and the, Im the impact, the implications, the causes. And it really, the book, first 44 pages of The Future of Men really talk about the, the early learnings on the emergence of women and the implications for men, and that just as women have been encouraged to adopt certain characteristics for lives, careers, taking on more traditionally male characteristics for success, and there are a lot of books about that, there's articles, it, it, uh, what are the implications for men? No one had written about that. There had been no research on that. So it was really looking at, here are the statistics, here's what the realities were, that your sons, your boyfriends, lovers, friends, husbands, uh, dads are confronting and will be confronting in the next several years. And here's how to get out in front of it. Here's how to deal with it. Here's how to at least understand where it's coming from and what we can do about it. And the reality, of course, has been that we've done very little of that, and we have all the, all the realities that, that we're now facing. You know, if you look at the Amazon ratings of my books, you'll see a lot of number ones. Mm -hmm. And read those number ones, and you'll, you'll see what the reality of uh, masculinity is today, because they reflect uh, a mean-spirited, angry uh, reality that says that, and, and they call me out for seeking to feminize men, and that that's the destruction of masculinity as we know it. And, and what I, my response to them is, yes, the future of men is to be more feminized, is to relate to and, and live those past uh, realities of your fathers, your grandfathers, even your older brothers, uh, and your sisters, your older sisters, your moms who lived a very different reality. The future of masculinity, the future of gender norms, I hope, is to find a state, you know, a point of equilibrium. Uh, in many ways, there, you could argue we've overbalanced in some ways. I, I don't think that's true. I think that we need to continue to overbalance, and that has definite impact on young men who are impacted by that overbalancing, and, and it'll be a generation or two before we pull back from that. And the challenge is, the opportunity is to, for this generation of young men, your generation of young men, to embrace and be role models, and, and for future generations of men and women of all, of all gender uh, uh, self-identities uh, to be able to look at, have role models, have guides who are embraced by society, embraced by the culture, and, and to embrace society and culture in, in return.
Creating a safe workspace is something I'm not an expert in. I'm not sure anyone can be an expert in. We really have to refuse to accept workspaces that people feel uncomfortable and to have a process within those organizations for communications and fair representation of that point of view into the organization in a way that where it either changes, adjusts, or you have to leave. You know, it's easy to say in, in, a, in a privileged community uh, where someone is working in, in a situation where they don't have the option to leave their job, where there aren't other job opportunities quickly available. And, and we as a society and culture in, in the large corporate, white collar, traditionally white collar spaces, I do think a lot of those issues are being addressed. Where they're not being fully addressed yet are in the more traditionally blue collar uh, jobs and roles, roles where people don't have control over the environment or the, even the ability to voice it without losing their jobs or certainly the threat of losing their jobs or of being treated even worse within the environment. And those are society and cultural and my fear today is that we see society and culture in many areas and places uh, politically and elsewhere moving in the wrong direction. The greatest change in corporate society in terms of cultural shifts in norms around diversity, I would say the biggest change is fear. Senior executives across the corporate world are suddenly in fear of being outed for their past behaviors and are much more conscious of their present behaviors, but I'm not sure they're willing yet to embrace or accept the pain that they've caused. and and. Uh, the reality of generations of women, people of color, who have had to come into the media advertising business and really internally absorb a lot of that pain. And we're now going through a period where that pain is being allowed freedom uh, to be voiced, and that's creating fear and you're seeing it across corporate ranks and and you're also seeing that defend that instant defensiveness we didn't do it we didn't do it now we have proof we have evidence no one ever brought it to our attention well no one ever brought it to your attention because they'd be fired if they brought it to your attention so the culture we have to move past the period of fear to a time when it's simply a part of the reality and the norms we all live in and unfortunately, again, I come back to the challenge we're facing right now as a society and why I think 2020 is the most pivotal year, not just in our industry because of all the technology implications, but in our society, in our culture, in our, in our world, in, in our environment. We're seeing, the, we're seeing the world burning, literally, and flooding. Uh, you know, we, we enjoy shows around the apocalypse you know, and we almost get a sense that that's what we're preparing for. We, we have to address that. And I think in too many ways, corporations, organizations fear what could happen from a regulatory point of view, what could happen from a political point of view, what could happen from a Wall Street point of view. We can't operate on fear when we operate on fear we lose.
The answer to fear is simple. It's education. Comes back to Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, 1932. We're in a race between disaster and education. And our schools, our school system, is no longer really effectively preparing people for the realities they confront when they come into the workforce, into their adult years. We're not learning about the cultural societal shifts that are happening except in sociology courses. Uh, but if we look toward online learning and the opportunities for online learning, and by online learning I mean the, the short form, the, the podcast, the ability to listen for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and really become educated in ways that will want you to drill down more and more deeply, whether it's issues around the environment and global climate change, whether it's around diversity, inclusion, equality, whether it's around a meeting you're going into and want to be a little more prepared or a meeting you're taking and want to be a little more prepared. It's education and doing a much better job around communicating out the truth and having a process by which truth can be vetted and create norms where everyone's truth is different. You can't have everyone's truth being different and you have to come back to my home which is media and media has to begin taking more and more responsibility to the world, to society, to culture, to people, to humanity, than to Wall Street. Sure, the Advancing Diversity Hall of Honors uh, induction uh, experiences are really designed to bring attention, the industry and the world's attention to our community of advertising media uh, entertainment, marketing, where we've been toward the bottom on almost every ranking of diverse talent, uh, act, bringing young talent into the industry, retaining that talent, nurturing, uh, building leadership skills, and moving them, uh, th this next generation, the new majority, into society. And by new majority, I don't just mean uh, young Gen Z, I also mean seniors, I mean those of color, those who have been incarcerated, military. It is a new majority as we look widely that we have not fully embraced. So those companies, organizations, individuals who are activating successful programs that are not only successful in achieving short-term diversity goals but also successful in helping their business grow. So we've identified companies as wide-ranging as <coughs> Procter & Gamble and Unilever to some of the media agencies like IPG and Publicis Media, to Shelley Zalas, to Ad Color, uh, to the Ad Council, to the ANA, who are activating programs that are proven successful and then evangelizing those programs in society. Our goal at Advancing Diversity Hall of Honors is to recognize that the industry has been very good at advocating and very bad at activating programs successfully. Those groups, companies that are making change, we want to call attention and then we want to promote what they're doing. We're not, we don't want to, we are promoting what they're doing to a global audience of young people, people of, who, who are diverse, to let them know we have program systems processes to welcome and embrace and keep them in our industry going forward. There is no pipeline problem 
there, you go down into the, you know, the colleges, the community mm -hmm. colleges, there's a wealth of talent available. The challenge is our industry tends to be centered in the most expensive cities. Our pay scales, uh, starting pay scales, are, are among the lowest uh, of any industry. Uh, people come in, they're not given the opportunity to gain experiences. They're looked at that work here in this small task, in this cubbyhole, and get experience. It's not about experience, it's about experiences. And we as an industry have not been good at doing that. But there are programs that have been tremendous. What, uh, what Verizon uh, does with their Ad Fellows programs, the IRTS, uh, which is a program that you're very familiar with, the fellowships, um, that um, the, there are so many real committed organizations that are succeeding and the opportunity is to take those successful programs, highlight them and bring them out not only into scale them across the industry but communicate what our industry is doing to those we really want to attract and once we bring them in to give them the income levels, to give them the support, to give them the guide, uh, the, the guide to how to succeed in this industry, and that's not by following the traditions of it, it's by creating new traditions that they're leading on. Well, I think, you know, the, the first job across the, the United States now averages nine months, 10 years ago it was 18 months. So we have to accept that when young people come in, it may not be right for them, and we want to support them staying within the industry and finding those opportunities and welcoming them back when they look, when they feel that you may, they may be ready to come back to the opportunities you offer. But I think the most important thing is to give them an immersion across the industry and to allow them to see the whole organization. We as a, every industry needs to break down silos internally. We need to integrate across capabilities. Uh, we need to embrace the young talent. Sixty percent of our industry has been here less than eight years and the turnover is enormous. So we're experiencing a huge turnover of young people who are not getting the education, the proper, I won't say training, the development tools to continue and grow their careers. People fear futurists. People want to maintain the status quo. So my whole career has been built around really being a sponge as opposed to a visionary or a futurist in listening taking in, constantly learning, constantly educating myself about what's coming, what's here, what's been. And then more of a sponge, you squeeze out and you see certain patterns emerging and you take those patterns and you say, here's the likely way these patterns are, will, are, like, are going to flow and how you get caught up in that flow. And therefore, here's what you should be prepared for. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear we're fine, we're good, what we're doing is right. So I wouldn't say there's been criticism as much as it took about 10 years for people to start saying we should listen, then another 10 years to say we're listening but we're not necessarily paying attention. And now I'm in the 10 year period where they're paying attention and beginning to act and respond, but there's still people are still fearful of the message I'm taking out to them, which as an industry, we're a mess and we have to fix the mess or we're going to go through a long period of contraction. 
which in many ways I think is inevitable, is coming, is looming, political issues on the horizon and realities. We are confronting so much as an industry and we keep going on in our day-to-day -day worlds looking at short-term results, short-term realities. We have to take a long-term perspective. And my fear, my fear for the industry is that we're locked into paradigms of how we've approached technological change in the past. And those paradigms are still locked into 1920s industrial age uh, business models. And unless we reinvent capitalism, unless we reinvent the way we do business, unless we reinvent the way we're organized and who we're organized with, uh, we move into a, a, a very challenging time for our, for our industry, for our society, for the world. Great question, Darren. What does inclusion mean to me? I take it personally. Uh, having grown up as, as the only Jew in a school of 1,200 kids, um, having them come in one day and no one talking to me because they learned in church school the night before that I personally killed Jesus. I believe in Jesus, and I did then, even as a Jew, um, to hear I had killed him and not understanding that was just has resounded in me in so many ways. Inclusion is being the only, uh, the only kid in my neighborhood with a working mother who went on to be a top computer programmer for the government. Um, my, my sense of inclusion therefore extends out to being open to everyone and everything, but inclusion also means recognizing my own biases, which I have and both conscious and unconscious biases and recognizing when I say something harmful that I'm saying something harmful. Inclusion to me means listening. It means be, you know, hearing uh, when there are issues or problems that, that I can help uh, resolve.